0: Welcome to Off-Kilter, a podcast about the fight for economic liberation and what it will take to set us all free. Powered by the Century Foundation, I'm Rebecca Vallis, and I'm a former legal aid lawyer turned policy advocate who works with public policy and law, as well as organizing, coalition building, and narrative as Tools for building a more just society, one premised on collective consciousness of our common humanity and the inherent dignity and rights that come with being human. Every week, I talk with visionary leaders working to reinvigorate our shared imagination and disrupt the off kilter imbalance of power in the U.S. to build a society where everyone can thrive and experience the shared abundance we all deserve. And this week, continuing a series of conversations about the limiting beliefs we as a collective must release and replace to pave the way for economic liberation in the U.S., I sat down with two dear friends and leaders within the disability rights and justice movement, Rebecca Coakley and Keith Jones, to talk about one of the most toxic limiting beliefs underpinning large-scale oppression in the U.S. today, the notion that a human being's worth comes from their work. We ended up having a far-ranging conversation about why disability leaders know this is not a moment to be seeking to return to, quote, normal, who the American dream was and wasn't designed to include, and some of the key limiting beliefs constraining the modern American philanthropic sector, and much more. Rebecca Coakley is the Program Officer for Disability Rights at the Ford Foundation, and Keith Jones is President and CEO of Soul Touchin' Enterprises. You can find more about their work in notes. Coakley, Keith, thank you so much to both of you for taking the time to come back on the show. I'm really looking forward to being in conversation with both of you. Uh, I don't know that the three of us have ever actually been together in conversation at the same
1: time. No, I don't think so. And thank you again for having me.
2: Thank you so much, Valacia. Anytime I can be in a a space, whether virtual or real life with Keith, it's, it's never a dull moment. (laughs)
0: <laughs> and, and Coakley, you were actually, I think, the person who first put me on to Keith and introduced me to, to Keith's work. So I, I get to thank you for introducing us. But, um, but before we get into where we're going to go with this conversation, and, and part of why I'm very excited to have both of you on the show, um, I, I want to give you, each of you a chance to remind our listeners uh, a, a little bit about how you each come to this work and some of the hats that you're each wearing now within um, the, uh, the, the disability rights and, and justice sector. Um, you, you've both talked a little bit on the show about um, your work before, but but especially for our, our newer listeners, would love to start there. Um, Coakley, do you wanna you wanna pick up first? Which is is kind of perfect since you were the you were the last uh, guest on last season's uh, season closer of Off Kilter.
2: Thank you so much. Um, so I have the pleasure of serving as the U.S. Disability Rights Program Officer at the Ford Foundation, where I've been for. Um, about the last, almost it'll be two years in January. And before that, had the joy of being the co-founder of the Disability Justice Initiative over at the Center for American Progress with Ballas. Um, really grew up doing this work, and you know, and I think that the, the conversation around disability, economic justice, um, liberation—you know—all of those sort of connected threads is one that really hits the home for me. You know, both of my parents uh, have this had the same disability that I do, which is dwarfism. And when my dad became paralyzed when I was about a year and a half, uh, my parents went to a state office and asked what sorts of programs they could use to help them stay on their feet, um, figuratively. And and they said that they would only provide my parents with vocational rehabilitation services if they put me up in foster care. And um, it wasn't something my parents ever talked about until I was much older. My mom brought it up to me when I was in high school and looking at voc rehab, and she was like, I don't trust that program, um, this is why. And you know, I hear today, I mean, I, I think there's just so much that hasn't changed. I mean, several years ago, there was an uh, intern at the White House that um, had been accepted for a whole ride to Harvard Law, and he had to turn it down because he wouldn't have the same hours of home care in Massachusetts that he would have in his home state of Illinois. I went to, you know, a a state school and did fine and, you know, he's doing well for himself, but he's not doing as well as he would have been doing with a Harvard law education and no college and no law school debt. And so I think that there is just this, it, it, it's beyond just like, what are the policy fixes? Because we know the policy fixes are one thing, but we know that it's, you know, it really is such an example of the structural ableism and, you know, the ableism compounded by racism, compounded by, sexism and homophobia um that puts these systems in place that you know feel like i mean you know years ago there was that book the undeserving poor that really like have this fundamental belief that there are people in this country that deserve to be poor um and deserve to be burdened um and it just it just gets me really pissed off
0: and that's exactly where we're going to end up going with this conversation, right, is, is to that deserving, undeserving binary that, that is, of, of course, at the heart of the uh, invisible limiting belief that governs so much of American society at this point of, of human history, which, of course, ties human worth to work. We're going to go there momentarily, but Keith, uh, take the mic next. Talk a little bit about how you've come to this work for our, our newer listeners who might not be familiar with, um, with where you sit in this sector.
1: All right, um, amazing story, and it's hard to follow. Um, but, my, you know, I come to this work, um, honestly, and by happenstance, and had no idea what the hell I was going. Um, <laughs> essentially, I have, you know, I came to the, the work when I, I was looking for a job. But I, the reason I was looking for a job is because I had run into all the barriers, um, most like Rebecca had talked about, in terms of how people saw My education, obtaining how people saw my humanity. So quick, where I come from and how I got here. Born in St. Louis, Missouri, for those that don't know, Missouri was the northernmost confederate state, hence the reason you have the Missouri Compromise. Um, When Section 504 got passed, we are that first generation that was living through the implementation as well as the busing. So from St. Louis, Missouri, going from first to fourth grade being in completely segregated schools, you learn that racism dropped away once you got on the short bus, quote, unquote. And then when you're in school, it didn't matter because everybody was, quote, crippled. But but there was no instant, there was no desire to elevate us in terms of what our dreams, hopes, and aspirations are. Um, Leapfrog, a couple more years, was one of the first kids to, quote, mainstream, unquote, Ithaca School District and then going into and being like the only Black anything in an entire school in Lansing, New York and facing ableism and racism at the ages of 9 and 10. And people talk about how, you know, everybody likes to show um, the little Black girl being, you know, guarded by you know, the MPs to go to school. What is beyond that is that there were kids with disabilities that didn't get that kind of security. We didn't get that kind of you know, let's let you in so you cannot be stupid. Um, and then after that, moving to Boston, and then that 766—that's major legislation that that's mainstreaming again. And then being one of the only two kids in my entire class that had, you know, against special education, those only two of us that got to go to quote regular classes, get to high school again. Only two or three of us quote got the regular classes coming to my graduation. In high school, uh, it was tacit, it was, oh, thank you so much Keith, you're so smart, Um, but we think you should come back to high school for another year. Who the hell wants to be a fifth year senior in high school by choice? Um, But again, it was this subtext of ableism, racism, classism, and low expectations where your teacher was like, we got your SAT scores, and ladies and gentlemen, there wasn't time for SAT scores were only 1,600, right? Uh, I get the SAT score and she goes, it was really good, you were really smart, but we think you should come back to school next year because your spelling wasn't too good. I'm like, I got the third highest score in the class. You go to, then you skip ahead a couple of decades coming into independent living work. I started noticing the chasm within the disability rights community and how racism, even when we all have disabilities, is prevalent and foremost. How there's homophobia, transphobia, the xenophobia, all of those things. And so for me in this work is to, you know, I'm not, I don't, I say it a lot on social media. We are not a fully realized movement until we are a fully inclusive movement. So the way I come to this work is, I get it. You ain't got to like everybody, but collective liberation takes a collective. And if we can't have that kind of conversation or, or work in that kind of fashion, we will just keep perpetuating you know, funding cycles where people go, oh, the poor Negroes in the South Side need a Wi-Fi, here's $10. So that's how I come to the work.
0: Keith, I can't think of a better place to start for this conversation. Thank you so much for for starting us off with the, the level of real talk that I think we're, we're hoping to get to uh, for for where we spend the balance of our time. Um, nice. You you and I, just for um, for continuity, I'll, I'll share with Off-Kilter's listeners that actually the idea for having this conversation as part of this um, series of conversations on Off-Kilter around the shifts in collective consciousness that it will take to, um, to ever have a shot at, at collective liberation right. as... You're describing um, you. You and I were actually on a panel recently that Coakley <laughs> roped us both into, yes. so we we get to blame her and thank her for that. Um, uh, for the uh, the disability um, and philanthropy forum which was doing a webinar series I think they still are on right. disability intersections with um, uh, other issue sets that philanthropy better understands are, are, are areas for them to to make grants for impacting things like public policy um, and so you and I were on that panel and I want to name check our friend me Ives Rubly who was um, part mm-hmm. of it too we asked her to be part of this conversation today but she's gallivanting abroad and doing fun traveling so we're, right. we're sad we're sad to miss her but but in that conversation conversation, conversation we were talking about, frankly, what it'll take to achieve economic liberation for disabled people in the United States more than 32 years after the Americans with Disabilities Act or or ADA became law and and collective limiting beliefs were a really big part of that conversation. So that was actually really what inspired me to make this next episode in this season into a conversation with with you and to bring Coakley in because we've been having it with her behind the scenes. Um, we've, We've talked a lot about disability economic justice and and long denied economic justice for the disability community in this country on off kilter at at different points over the years. So um, longtime listeners will be very familiar with some of the stats, for example, that people with disabilities in the United States are are more than twice as likely to live in poverty as people who don't have disabilities. Um, We have a huge uh, earnings gap uh, that actually Century Foundation Research has put a a number to. uh, People with disabilities are paid just 74 cents on average on the dollar compared with non-disabled workers in this country. So we, we could we could lay out lots and lots of the why we need to be having a conversation about how disability features in a collective liberation conversation. Right. We, we could spend all episode doing that, but that isn't what I w- want to do. What I actually really want to do with the two of you and part of why I've been really excited to have this conversation with both of you as part of this series is, is to get into some of the limiting beliefs. Beliefs, and, and frankly, some of the most toxic limiting beliefs that we as a collective most need to release and replace uh, vis-a-vis people with disabilities um, in this country, if we're ever going to have a shot at achieving economic liberation that that is truly collective and, and doesn't leave disabled people behind. And the core limiting belief that I, I want to dive into first with you both, that I feel like it's going to create a whole uh, set of directions we could go, and and I'd love to go anywhere you both want to go, is, is around that human beings' deservingness or worth comes from our work. And, and that was really a big part of that conversation, Keith, that you and Mia and I were having as part of that, um, that, that webinar in front of a whole bunch of, of uh, philanthropic leaders. So, Keith, I don't know if you want to pick up there with some of yes. what you were sharing in that conversation to help us start to get into that particular limiting belief and its toxicity.
1: Yes. Well, thank you. Uh, and when we were talking about the limiting belief, really, there's like, what's it the root, you know, when people say, I'm being philanthropic, right? They're giving something because it gives them an emotional feeling, or it it sets somewhere on their their moral compass, and they feel compelled. Uh, particularly in the disability space, however, a lot of those things are driven by, oh snap, I had a kid with a disability, what the, f-? and then get out and realize that this this utopic American dream that they that has been packaged and so does not exist once you have the disability. And so then you are set up in foundations, nonprofits, then you have the the funding network and every and and it turns into a machine. And for myself and the toxicity that I've seen is that at its fundamental core, saying here's a proposal to serve people who who need servicing, but you need to pick their needs over this other community In this other proposal and how do you weigh that right and then at that point it becomes subjective so the toxicity at its core is that it makes you have to you need to be more desperate than the next person in order to receive any kind of funding and then at that point you are receiving funding for a short amount of time and you're you're asked to multiply fish and loaves of bread and i mean people have done amazing things with small amounts of money but it goes to the history of understanding that in order to get a nonprofit up and running, to have a physical sponsor, to have a pilot 1C3, to do these things in order to even get to the point where you have the development officer who can write the grants, who can submit the grants. Like there's all that before you even get to the money. And so what are the tax codes that, that can be changed? What are the policies that can be changed to free up and, and release some of this money that can go to non-traditional um, organizations or people who are literally doing the work as we speak? And I think one of the, one of the more toxic traits is that there's just the subtext of racism and misogyny within philanthropy. It's, you know, and that's just ubiquitous whether you're talking about corporate America, whether you're talking about banking, whether you're talking about housing. And those are the things where we keep thinking that People are coming to this work, leaving themselves behind. If you are racist, misogynistic, xenophobic, but you have a call to be philanthropic, that doesn't change the fact that you're racist, misogynistic, xenophobic, but it does direct how you get out your money. So that's some of the underlying traits that we need to discuss and talk about.
0: I, I love that, Keith. And, and actually, you're, you're taking us into a, a whole uh, uh, related set of, of issues here around some of the limitations, too, with how philanthropy works in, in um, concert with um, or not so much in concert with with movement um, and uh, often with leaders on the ground. And, and I feel like that's a that's an important piece of this conversation, too, and one that I know Coakley's going to have a lot to say about as well, given her, her, her perch these days sitting within philanthropy instead of as an advocate on, on the outside with with us. Um, but Coakley, where, where do you want to take this conversation thinking about the um- Your work comes from your. your worth comes from your work. um, Kind of notion. Uh, Obviously, that that has a lot of um, uh, relevance for and impact on people with disabilities. Um, But it's got it's got toxicity that really, frankly, impacts all of us. Uh, Where where does where does your brain go when when you hear uh, the the deserving undeserving conversation in a way that that gets to that limiting belief around human worth coming from one's work.
2: You know, I think, thanks, Ballas. I I think about this a lot and I think about this um, both sort of historically and and also in terms of just um, the emerging role that philanthropy is having in the space. You know, I think that it would be impossible to have the conversation around your worth is your work if we, you know, don't actually talk about slavery and talk about, you know, the connection between slavery and disability and productivity You know, the fact that, you know, early pseudoscience, whether it was, you know, phrenology or uh, the creation of of specific mental illnesses like drapetomania that, you know, was known as or in plain language would be considered, you know, runaway slave syndrome. That there was this fundamental belief that there was a group of people, um, in this case, enslaved folks who were meant to do work. Um, and disability was also often the cause and consequence of a belief that they were not working, um, you know, and and the types of work that people would get given would be, uh, you know, determined by folks' impairments and disabilities, and their economic value would be determined by their disabilities and impairments, um, you know, and so this is like, this is part of You know, as Keith laid out, you know, people having disabled kids and being like, holy crap, the the American dream isn't accessible to them. But the American dream was never meant to be accessible to them. You know, I think about so many of the policies that have codified the state of poverty that people with disabilities are forced to live in came out of the New Deal. And the New Deal is often held up as this, you know, beacon of progressiveness and and this North Star, people are like, what would the new New Deal look like? I don't want a new New Deal because the new New Deal screwed disabled people in so many ways, Um, you know? And I think it's that, it's that it's worth having that conversation around what does it mean that, you know, the first, you know, sort of universally recognized disabled president because of all of his wealth and privilege, um, you know, felt that there was a certain class of people that deserved a certain class of people that deserve X and a certain class of people that didn't deserve X. Or if we were going to give them supports, we means tested them. We behavior, um, you know, enforced them. We had requirements about where they could be, who they could live with, you know, what they could do, where they go to school, all of those things. Yeah. And and when it comes to the philanthropic angle, the piece that is particularly interesting to me is that for over a century philanthropy basically acted like the disability community largely didn't exist. Um, and so it was left up to the federal government. And when you leave something up to the federal government, as most of us know, you know, with an administration that changes every four years, the, the wills and desires of what that funding looked like changed every four years. And I remember being in the George you know, W. Bush administration And, uh, you know, not working in it, but being, helping manage a grant from the Bush administration. And um, there had been a case going on about a number of young girls with disabilities at a segregated school who'd been sexually assaulted. And so we were bringing young people with disabilities together in DC for a week every year. And we wanted to do a training about, like, sexual assault and consent. And we were told that we couldn't do it, that we had to focus on Like, instead, the only framing that we could do is how to have healthy and safe and abstinent um, relationships, you know? And so what does it mean when all of the funding or majority of the funding going to your movement work comes from a federal government that changes every four years? Like, it's actually, in many ways, fundamentally, like, led to a slower growth. Slower rate of growth and development. Like it's, I'm just going to say it. And Keith, I feel like I can say this with you. Like hey. it crippled our movement. Yeah. Like we have yeah. a disabled movement because we were not afforded the same resources and the same tools that other social movements had because of philanthropic investment that we just didn't have.
1: Right. Right. It, it, it's 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 thank you because it's true, and it's one of the things that how do you how do you elevate yourself out of poverty with programs that um, restrict you from having assets? How are you? You know, when you're talking about employment, like what what is gainful employment if coming out of school, teachers don't think I'm worthy of being taught? What is what is the American dream if the American society had practiced eugenics forever? What does it mean in the philanthropic society? I remember we we did a we were working on one of the grants, on the new Freedom Initiative grants coming out of the Bush administration.
2: Oh my we, God, did you just bring up NFI? Yes. Wow. And
1: because, yes, lady, I am one of the people who did the CPIG, the Consumer Planning and Implementation Grant a group, where we did the whole, this is how CNS should do it. But again, it was coming down to funding. It was having to sit across some funders, or even later on when we were doing impactability and talking about this people with disabilities uh, learning how to self-defense and how to protect themselves against sexual assault and going to funders and talking about vulnerable populations and they have the funders say, I didn't know disabled people got sexually assaulted or were vulnerable. Wait, what? How? I'm taking a deep breath. <laughs> so what do you mean you didn't understand that? But you're controlling hundreds of millions of dollars and this is where the gaps are, where, you know, we, I guess for me, coming from the community, is we're expecting people who stepped into this space to be cognizant of the space that they're stepping into versus making it up as they go along. So if you're coming into the disability justice space, you can't come in and say, we're only gonna give you $10,000, go hold an event when you understand that the access needs alone could be four times that value. If you're gonna, you know, yes, we live in a world of Zoom, but we need online interpreters. We need actual card reporters. We're gonna need language interpreters. We're gonna need graphic recorders. There are multiple ways. And if you if you are a funder and you don't understand the underpinning of the architecture that's needed to, to do what you're funding, then what the hell are you doing?
0: I, I want to pull on the thread, there's so many threads here to pull on, but I want to pull on the thread of, of dreaming for just a moment, because you've right. both spoken about it, and you've both invoked the American dream um, as uh, something that was by design from the beginning, not accessible and inclusive to all people in this country. Um, if if that's something that is a surprise to anyone listening, <laughs> we don't have time, I think, to have that whole conversation here, but, um, uh, but it, it, it should hopefully be fairly straightforward to anyone who knows anything of of American history, um, uh, and Coakley, you started to describe some of how the conversation we're having today has to start with um, the the um, the role that slavery played in effectively creating a, a whole um, uh, uh, genre of policymaking that we are, are are frankly still living with, even if it's been somewhat um, whitewashed and uh, uh, poured into new um, bottles over the years. Um, the likes of of which we've talked on the show at, at length. Um, uh, such as work reporting requirements in public assistance programs and and so forth. Um, But I'd love to give each of you a chance to talk a little bit about the role of dreaming in both of your work and in the work of the disability rights and justice community. Here we are talking about some of the limiting beliefs that we as a collective um, are continuing to reinforce and to feed and to nourish in ways that hamstring our collective uh, dreaming capacity um, from, uh, from building a new a new economy and a new economic reality, including for disabled people. But as I I mentioned in um, uh, our our episode last week, um, uh, in uh, the opening monologue, um, something that I've been doing a lot of thinking about that I know each of you does a lot of thinking about all the time is, um gets back to the the notion of dreaming and its place in um uh policy making but also frankly in in larger work uh, that that impacts whole systems and, and culture at, at scale um and i noted last week that This is a moment in human history where modern day oracles are increasingly um, talking about the the time that we're living in as a battle of imaginations, in in which oppression is what happens when an individual or a whole group of people are living in someone else's dream instead Mm -hmm. of being free to dream their own dreams. Um, And I I talked about that last week with uh, with Jeremy and Solana from Liberation in a, a Generation um, but but as we talk now about the American dream and, and who it was for in the beginning, um, I'd love to give each of you a chance to talk a little bit and reflect on um, how dreaming and vision work shows up in your work. And then we'll come back, I think, to um, how we replace some of those limiting beliefs we've, we've started to get into. And Coakley, I don't know if you want to pick that up next.
2: Sure. Um, you know, I think... Uh, you know, where I would sort of start is uh, pulling on the thread that that Keith had mentioned earlier about sort of the role of positioning in terms of um, how you get funding, how you get people to buy into your work. And I think uh, there's, a, there's an activist named Jim Sinclair who coined it best when he said, you know, often we're forced to be self-narrating zoo exhibits mm-hmm. when it comes to... Um, getting funding because that's what the, you know, that's what it's very, um, uh, it's very Oliver-esque very much. Like, please, sir, can I have some more? Like, what is the, how do I make myself sound like a Sarah McLaughlin soundtrack SPCA commercial with like sad puppies to convince the people on the other side of the table to cut a check to invest in the dignity of disabled people. Um, you know, And it starts at its very earliest age. I mean, I don't know a single person with an apparent disability that wasn't told in high school that they should write a sob story about their disability for their college applications. Like write the worst story possible so that you can get the most financial aid. And so it's, it's actually trained by the system in order to perpetuate itself. Um, you know, and I see it as a as a funder, and this is where the dreaming piece comes in. Often, when I'm talking to to folks, and I mean, I think Ballast, I'm going to tell a story from our past, which is, you know, when we when we first started the disability work over the Center for American Progress, or started building out the initiative. Um, I remember the first email we got from the amazing Nuran Khan at the Ford Foundation. And uh, around specific dollars. And I remember where I was, I was in my car coming back from Delaware and Naran said, I have a little bit of money for you all to, to start something. And I remember in my head space, I was thinking like a little bit of money is like $10,000. Like maybe, maybe she's got $50,000 that we could play with at the most, but Oh my God, how would we spend $50,000? Um, You know, and then getting the grant letter and seeing what we were being given was an actual tangible, like real investment. And I remember calling her and saying, oh, my God, when you said a little bit of money and she said, well, that is a little bit of money. She's like, I would invest like bazillions in what you all are doing, but I don't have like I don't have a bazillion checkbook right now. Um, And I find myself having that conversation now with a number of grantees, uh, with with people who want to talk about funding. You know the. I remember talking to somebody who'd been running a really phenomenal youth leadership program for young people with disabilities in uh, the rural U.S. And over, you know, a third of people with disabilities live in rural America. We don't often talk about it, though. And I remember saying to them, "You've been running this program for like 15 years on art sales and donations. What would it be like for you just to take some time to think about the work?" And they looked at me like I had grown like a second head out of my neck. Um, And they were like, what? And I was like, you all have worked so hard for so long. Like, think about it. Like, have you had time to think about like, if you could do anything with this program, what would it be? Have you had time to think about like, if you wanted to evaluate it, not like I'm saying you do have to, but like, if you wanted to do an evaluation, see, what have you learned over this like 15 years? Like, you could do that. Like, take some time and just think about it and you know that's a luxury like and i and and like they really looked they were like are you are you sure and they're like if if, but what if we don't produce and i'm like i don't want you to produce i want you to think i want you to dream and you know keith i'm going to kick it over to you because i'm sure you have thoughts on this but like as disabled people we're not often told we're not often given that luxury the chance to sit and think about the work to iterate to just like you know, for me to hop on the phone and call Keith and be like, Keith, let's just like shoot the for an hour about what some cool stuff that we could collaborate on. Maybe we'll come up with something. Maybe we won't. Maybe the conversation is just the point. And while that's like completely normative and accepted in non-disabled spaces, you know, the perception is of disabled people, if you're not, you know, and I would say not just disabled people, let's be real, like any marginalized community, um, if you're not producing widgets, like you're wasting folks
1: time. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's funny that when we talk talking about dreaming in, in this space. And, you know, it was like we've, we've had conversations and it's like, oh, you know, um, dreaming is, is what we do when we wake up and try to exist in this space. Um, you know, before you start talking about social justice and later, I just dreamed that I could get off the curb in order to go get a cup of coffee And if I'm in New Jersey, I'm really dreaming that in the winter that somebody's smart enough to shovel the curb cut. So just basic dreams on just being able to exist. But in the philanthropic space, it's always um, you know, the the stuff that works on the streets, whether it's dealing with, you know, youth, you know, whether it's suburban or in the rural, whether it's working with seniors, understanding, you know, how how people define themselves is more important than how Funders need them to be defined. And that has always been the challenge. So when we talk about dreaming, at least in this, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm guilty of being a, an insanely huge dreamer and thinker. And I, and I encourage every person that I come across, at least intentionally in this space, like imagination is yours. Let it run. And, but again, like you said, like it, what, what, as a person with a disability, we've always been told not to dream. Um, if, you know, the American dream, or even in this space, if we come up with something that's innovative that we know that will directly impact the community in the affirmative, then we have to dream up how do we sell it, right? And so the, the conversation, at least in certain circles now, is that people don't want to prostitute their pain. They don't want to have to pimp out their, their pain and t- trick on their tragedy in order to get, you know, some kind of financing to do something in order for them to self-elevate, and the dreams are there, but they are often, they often run up against the the the, the jackhammer of of doubt and depression that where people will be told, your dream is quote unrealistic unquote, which is kind of funny considering it's a dream, right? But dreams are reality if we do the work to bring them in, into existence, and I think for the philanthropic space, this is a time for for, you know, funders, you know, programs to dream. Like you said, we are in a, a battle of imaginations. We have been con- living in a ma- imagination constructed by white, cis, heterosexual men that has everything tilted towards their ascension and their retention of power. That is not, de- that is not debatable. That is qualifiable and quantitative. And so how do you dream and imagine yourself out that, outside that construct? And you have to if you're part of a marginalized community because you need every day to wake up and find something and choose joy. You know, we had, we celebrated indigenous people yesterday. You wake up and on a land where you are witnessing the rolling Holocaust that has decimated your people for five and six centuries, but you're finding joy and you're dreaming for a better day. You're a person with a disability who literally gets if you're lucky, $1,100 a month. And you're dreaming on how, do I, how can I survive? How can I get a PlayStation? How can I get a juice? So there is always dreaming. What Where we are having problem is that there is a subtext that our humanity isn't really human. We're not really the epitome of what human existence should be or can be. And mm-hmm. thus, people are making those cost-benefit analysis about well, you know, the Negroes is going to die anyway. So maybe let's give them to this. Or, you know, we would love to help you, but we're looking for something with a more impactful presence. And that is not, you know, for collective liberation, I can't fight for the disability rights to be elevated and not talk about migrant rights or talk about women's rights or talk about reproductive rights or education or, you know, how do we prevent recidivism? So the dreaming is there. It's just making sure that we can help people get it over, over those barriers that try to often crush those very dreams.
0: Oh, Keith, there's so much there. And and I I could just sit back and listen to you talk all day and be a happy and much smarter person for doing it anytime <laughs> we get together. But I, I love I love so much how you put um, uh, one particular piece of what you just said, talking about how um, uh, being told that your dreams aren't realistic, right? Because boy, does that just say everything, right? About um, in, in so many ways, our modern um, uh, uh, sort of policy-making sector or philanthropic sector, or whichever whichever um, component of of reality creation you you want to dive into, right? Um, uh, the the notion that a dream isn't realistic. Well, I, I would just say to uh, to any um, listening, and we, I know we have a lot of folks who are um, uh, public policy advocates of various types who, who listen to this show. If the dreams that you are out there pursuing are realistic, then you're not dreaming big enough. <laughs> <my> friends, <Right. laughs> because that means you are working within the status quo and what you are that is that is not the same as dreaming. So Keith, I love I love how you put that, um, and and that's really that's exactly why we wanted to have this series of conversations on this podcast was explicitly to get out of talking about um, how we work within this the the existing system to to tinker at the margins or how we cut poverty just a little bit, right? Which has been the north star of the economic policy movement um for, for so long, particularly in, in Washington, DC, versus actually asking the bigger questions like, I, I don't know how how might we have an economy where everyone belongs and has enough to be able to afford a basic dignified standard of, of living because we're all humans, which is maybe a different way of seeing the world than say, you know, only people who are working a certain amount or have a certain work history um, are deserving of assistance which is is the current model we have the current paradigm we have which is is founded on on worth coming from work um, cox um i want to i want to bring you back in here as as we kind of continue this conversation and we're bringing back in some of the the limiting beliefs parts and so i, I want to go there because both of you have referenced a really a great real-time example so maybe to make this a little more concrete for folks who are like cool i'm i'm down with the idea of identifying and making visible collective limiting beliefs so that we can release and replace them. But but what does that mean in the context of uh, of this, your work is not your worth conversation? And, and what does that mean for, say, the, the disability community? One very um, uh, salient real time example. Um, and Keith, you, you started to bring this up by talking about um, uh, uh, disability insurance and um, how most people aren't getting much more than, say, $1,100 or $1,200 per month to try to live on if they're lucky enough to even be able to access uh, those programs. But um, social security disability benefits are actually a great example of the um, worth being tied to work for for many reasons, but one that I will lift up right now is uh, maybe an an example of some of what we're talking about. And that is that we have two programs. Um, We have uh, SSI, Supplemental Security Income, which is actually celebrating its 50th anniversary in, in just a few weeks, and Social Security Disability Insurance. They're both parts of the Social Security system, but Social Security Disability Insurance which is a much more adequate, if still inadequate, program um, and and provides people thousands of dollars a month, potentially, relative to the max, which SSI brings you to no better than just over $800 a month if you're you're lucky enough to receive SSI. SSDI is only for people who have a work history. It's for people who have enough work to, we're just going to call a spade a spade, be considered sufficiently it, deserving to receive social security benefits, right? That's that's actually the line that we've drawn. And SSI, this program that Congress has largely forgotten for 50 years and left to wither on the vine, not even updating key elements of the program like asset limits, which you were referencing before, Keith, um, which have stayed stuck at $2,000 for um, uh, literally as long as I've been alive. I was born in 1984 for context. SSI is the program for people who don't have a work history. And so there you've got, okay, well, at best, you're going to get three quarters of the federal poverty line to try to make ends meet. And it's not going to be enough to afford housing anywhere in the country. But hey, that's what you get if you don't have the work history. I can't think of a more clear um, example of the kind of binary that we've created in our society and in our, our, our policy fabric, then, then that um, set of programs compared side by side um, and the work uh, eligibility rules as the core of which one you get, whether you're the good kind or the bad kind of disabled person. Um, so, just want to offer that up and see what other threads you guys want to pull on or examples you want to offer of how the your work is your worth limiting belief shows up in uh, modern day American society and especially for the disability community.
2: You know, Alice, you hit on, you know, SSI and SSDI. I think that are are very valid examples, you know, and to build on that, I would, you know, talk about, talk about housing and talk about the fact that we know that over one third of accessible Section 8 housing units um, are not in the, like, are not in the hands of disabled people who actually need accessible units. There's no requirement that accessible units go to people that, have accessibility needs, um, you know? And so it's one of those things where it's like, okay, great. You have this this you know $1,100 check. What kind of housing can you access? Oh, you can access this, but we have no way of telling whether or not you're gonna have an accessible unit because we also don't have a database really, um, you know? And, oh, you wanna be an entrepreneur? That's great, but did you know that the Small Business Administration doesn't include people with disabilities as a marginalized community who's eligible for minority small business loans, you know, but yet they include veterans. And so when you're getting into that conversation about who is deserving versus undeserving, I mean, I, I think that there is a real interesting conversation around um, the notion of, you know, veterans needing supports and just regular civilian disabled folks needing support. And, you know, when we think about how these lines are drawn, and then what these lines do is they perpetuate the silos between these communities. I mean, just as we've seen, you know, as as I mentioned with federal budgets, like uh, an administration could decide that Down syndrome is the trendy disability. And so we're going to put all our money in Down syndrome. Next administration comes in and says, we're going to take all that money from the Down syndrome community. And this year, you know what? We're going to give it to the autism community. But we're going to—we're not going to give it to autistic people because Keith, you know, autistic people cannot handle their own money. We're going to right, give it right. to, to well-meaning, non-autistic, <laughs> right. able-bodied white folks yes. to tell yes. us and to design programs based on what they know that autistic people mean. So now you have the, the folks in the Down syndrome community pissed off at the autistic community yeah um and rightfully so and so you know the these systems and like they're they're designed in such a way that we don't get to drink like Mm -hmm. we are a we are a widget like and when you want to break out of the widget like people don't know what to do with you i mean and i think you can look at at you know britney spears and paris hilton being you know, flag waivers for, for the disability rights movement this last year, pushing back on, on guardianship policies and pushing back on those really terrible like mental health and behavioral boot camps. Um, and they have a hell of a lot of privilege to do that. But I think about the, you know, the hundreds of thousands of, of black and brown and LGBT and immigrant disabled folks that don't have Paris or Britney's access and privilege right. that are still being subjected to these programs.
1: And that 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 card right there, it's it's you know the sexy disability this month, you know, over the over the arc, you know, and I, I heard a birth date in the 80s, so I'm just gonna keep my gray hair to myself. But when you talk about um, this space, you know, there is there, over the course of my life, there have been sexy disabilities. That's the way I do. because I grew up in the the age of the Easter Seal telethons, the Jerry kids. Uh, you know, we've, we've had these things where, you know, and that was a huge thing for a long time. And so when you talk about how do we get to the point where we're talking about economic liberation for persons with disabilities, here's the case example. We literally are less than a month out from elections. Not a politician is talking about the fact that there are policies. That are incongruent across CMS, Center for Medicaid and Medicare Studies, HUD, Social Security, the Veterans Administration. There are no, like, it's almost like people went in intentionally and saying, this month my son has my son has autism, so this crowd needs to be much more important. No, my son has mental health challenges. So this, no, my son, and it's never looked from a a how can I support My community to live the fullest life possible within the context that they self define. That's never been the way we've addressed policy, and policy in the United States, for as long as there's been the United States, has never been geared towards solving and/or eradicating the problem. It's always been what is the most politically expedient. The New Deal, as you pronounce, was absolute, but it was a white man with money. My grandparents and my people. Coming from sharecropping, that hadn't. We didn't get in yet. First Nation people didn't get any of that. You jump. We're in 2022. We're having people declare pandemics being over while offering booster shots. The people who are at the top of the CDC list for the ones who are going to die first are us. And so, how do you how do you find joy and how do you talk about collective liberation and economic liberation for the disability community when there's cognitive dissidents? about the things that they needed to be in place in order for that economic justice to happen. And so I think the dreaming, the the policy-making, the short-sightedness, those are all real solvable. We can do it today because it really is a choice. Are you gonna continue to intellectualize your biases and your racism and your ableism to underpin the reason you're not giving money to particular groups? You're not educating particular segments? of our society, you're not giving us access to affordable, accessible housing. Like those those policy decisions and those actions in intentional spaces are derived from intentional conclusions about the value of our humanity. And that's the challenge that we can have going forward. It's because again, you know, people look at us as a charity, like there's this moral compass, like if we do it, we've helped you poor pitiful people, versus saying, if I want a a stable, successful, forward-leaning society, we need to make sure that everybody has the access to what they need in order for that society to be that. You know, what's what's the old saying? The greatest and the greatness of a society is judged how it takes care of the least among them. And so if that's not reflective in our our work and our policy, it's not impossible, we just have to get people to do that.
0: Oakley, you um, you spend some you spend some of your time in, in life on Twitter. I'm, a, I'm just going to acknowledge that, um, and I and and you're one of my favorite people on Twitter. There's a lot of folks that I could honestly take or leave on Twitter. <laughs> I spend a lot less time on Twitter than I than I, I did at other points in, in my um, advocacy work. But you're one of my favorite people on Twitter, and part of what I um, I really enjoy that you spend a lot of your time doing is is actually. Um, jumping into conversations um, with folks that you may or may not know, um, uh, who are kind of in Twitter spaces, um, gathering within uh, the the virtual disability community, which is is very active um, in in a number of different Twitter spaces, and you often jump in and um, and and you sort of um, you know help provide a, a little um, you know context or uh, or a pep talk sometimes or 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 um, you know a personal story from your own work that that just from my witnessing the, the influence that can have sometimes with folks that may follow you and um, who, who may not know you in real life, but who obviously are, are huge admirers of your work, as, as we all are, to know you is to be a huge admirer of Rebecca Coakley's incredible work. Um, but the impact can be really significant sometimes. Um, uh, for example, as I saw uh, in a, a recent um, Twitter exchange, uh, kind of late at night, I saw you hopping in and there was somebody saying what a terrible day they had had at work and how much it had really eroded their confidence, um, and uh, and and what a toll it had taken on them because it had been just a really, really terrible, a day at the office. Um, and you jumped in and you said, long way of saying, and this is why I'm telling the story: um, your work is not your worth. Right. Um, you are so much more than your work, and you 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 kind of offered, I think, the pep talk that this person needed in that moment, but in a very visible way and with some sharings about bad days you've had at the office that, that don't make you, you know, any less fabulous and worthy and uh, inherently deserving as a, a human. Um, and so I, I bring that in for, for the last portion of this conversation, which I'm sad is is coming to a close to, to to note that I think there are probably a lot of folks who are listening who might actually take this conversation at multiple levels. Um, and, and with the words of a mentor of mine ringing in my ears as I have multiple of these conversations for off kilter um, a, a mentor said recently to me that living in this time in human history is either an affliction or an assignment um, words that that uh, really landed with me as in a lot of ways uh, what I think a lot of us who do this work kind of need to hear right now um, I'd, I'd love to give both of you the chance to close in the last few minutes that we have and I'll start with you Coakley, since I feel like you were just offering a little bit of this advice the other day and often do on Twitter I'd love to give each of you a chance to 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 share whatever advice and wisdom you have for advocates who are working in this moment, who are looking to accept that assignment, um, but who maybe are trying to figure out how to find their place in the work and in a way that doesn't then cause them to define their worth by it. Cox, I don't know if you want to pick that up first. Um, I'm reminded by
2: something that I, uh, senator duckworth said several years ago uh at cap actually um where she talked about uh, and and you know i know it's a it's a military slogan but she talked about embracing the suck and you know the fact that there are days that it really sucks and i think honestly just as disabled people are expected by society to be willing to you know tell our worst case scenario st- stories um in, in a as a mechanism for obtaining assistance we're also meant on the flip side to be like like shiny sunny happy people um, and act like it's not all bad you know and and you know are often asked you know where do you find hope and there's going to be days when it's really damn hard to find hope mm-hmm. um, you know and so i think i think a embracing the suck is actually very liberating acknowledging the fact that there are days it sucks i mean i had a i had a moment last week at the office, at a public event, where I was in conversation with um, my dear friend, David Johns. And he says to me, sis, do you realize that person behind you is taking photos of you while we're in conversation? And I'm being like, Sh- are you serious? Like, not only is this happening, this is happening at my place of work. Like, what do I do in these moments? You know, and I, I didn't used to talk about these things. I never used to talk like I used to be like, I have to put forth this image that I'm capable that I don't deal with these things or I, I shrug them off when I deal with them, when I encounter them. And it was honestly, and I give this person a lot of credit. It was honestly Lydia Brown over at the center for democracy and technology who I've known for years. And I watched Lydia's radical vulnerability and talking about when things don't work out. And it really empowered me. Like I struggled with talking about it and it was, you know, watching Lydia openly talk about when, you know, a funding application doesn't work. Or you know, uh, you know, an interview for a position doesn't work, or you get quoted wrong in a in a media piece. And I found it really like I was in awe of them, and I was like, oh my! And I reached out to them, and I said, you know, I never thought about talking about when shit doesn't work, mm. you know. And I think that that actually gives us power because it reminds us why we're in this fight. And I think for those of us with um more visible profiles there is a value add to being vulnerable because in acknowledging the ableism we deal with um, because I think for so many of our young professionals and our younger folks starting out, they think, Oh, once I get to a certain level, like if I'm good enough, they're not going to discriminate against me. Like if I'm like, you know, what do I need to do to get to a place where like I'm, I, I, I've overcome ableism. And it's like, nah, they're still going to, like, snatch you from behind and, like, beat your butt when, when you turn the corner. Like, they're, they're just waiting for you. Um, but I do think that's powerful. I'm going to pass it to Keith. And
0: yeah. Keith, you're, you're going to get the last word in the last couple of minutes that we have. So make it good, which you always do. Uh, uh,
1: how do you, I mean, I guess, you know, taking, you know, Rebecca, you laid it out. It's like, in this work, um, how, do you, how do you distinguish your worth from the work? Um... I, I submit to a lot of people that your worth is who you are versus what you do if you're in this work you're not in this work because you're going to get rich my bank account is screaming that every day um and that so when you go into these places and you reach these levels it, it is incumbent upon us who've, who've gone before you to reach back and to give you you know to give you the tidbits and so i try to do that as much as i can um but reminding people that You know, yes, certain disabilities get you in certain places where people came, oh, I didn't know you had a disability. Oh my God, you're so amazing. If I get another inspirational quote because I'm getting the damn coffee, I may lose my mind. But it's really for those people in this space who are even for the people who are working in this space who are listening, the listeners. It's the way I emulate, the way I listen, the way I see, the way I communicate, the way I process information is, is a part of my humanity. It is not a deficiency, it is not a detraction, it is my humanity. What is more important is that anybody who looks at you and takes a sliver of your identity in order to, to uh, devalue the entirety of your identity, that doesn't rest with us. That rests with them. And I, I, And I'm quite clear when I tell people you give no passes for stupidity. You don't, get, you don't get to say, I had unconscious bias. Everybody knows what they don't like. So if you, if you need to embrace the fullness of yourself and standing yourself, because somebody along the way is gonna think something out about you that they don't like. That ain't your damn concern. What is your concern is how you move through the space and hold yourself true to what your ethos is because nobody else wakes up in your body but you. So how can you hold true to yourself, even in the face of withering racism, ableism, xenophobia, transphobia, holding true to the ethos that, you know, your worth is defined by how you carry yourself and how you love your own humanity and express it with others. That's the way that we get through this kind of work because this is not about money. This is about us getting to the other side. So the movement does not need to exist. Just the movement of embracing and loving our humanity.
0: I can't think of a better place to, to end this conversation. Um and, and Keith, you should you should say also the movement towards the party you're gonna throw, right? Because didn't you promise to throw a big party once we get there?
1: Oh, baby. Drinks, all kind all kinds of things we can't say on the radio so we don't get you kicked off the air. <laughs> um but no, like the goal, like like the running joke is. We're in the movement, but where where is the movement going? And what is the end result of the movement? Like, the movement shouldn't consistently keep moving. We need to have a, a destination. And hopefully, at the end of that destination, Rebecca and I and you and the rest of the community will come together and party for collective liberation.
0: Which is a party I am very, very much looking for forward to, um, I can't think of a, a better place to end this conversation, much as I would love to keep having it for another hour or two with both of you. Keith Jones is a disability rights and justice advocate, also the president and CEO of Soul Touch and Enterprises. Rebecca Coakley is the disability rights program officer at the Ford Foundation and my partner in crime uh, on so many projects. We obviously can't stay away from each other. Coakley, Keith, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation, for to get into some of these topics, and, and for all of the work that each of you do and for folks who are looking to learn more about each of your work uh, i'll send them to our show notes as always for some links Um, but just sending all good wishes to both of you and looking forward to being in um, in real space in physical space with both of you at some point soon i hope
1: yes thank you so much for having
0: me sounds good and that does it for this week's show. Off-Kilter is powered by the Century Foundation and produced by We Act Radio with a special shout-out to executive producer Troy Miller and his merry band of farm animals and the indefatigable Abby Grimshaw. Transcripts, which help us make the show accessible, are courtesy of Cheryl Green and her fabulous feline co-worker. Find us every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. And if you like what we do here at Off-Kilter Enterprises, send us some love by hitting that subscribe button and rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts to help other folks find the pod. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.